and welcome back. This is Charles, and this is once again the Bringing It All Back Home podcast. It's a podcast about analog and digital gear, photography in South Jersey. And it's also about live chats, reaching out to friends from around the world, seeing what they're up to, checking in on their creative projects. This is episode 30. Hard to believe. And today's podcast is going to focus on analog gear. Specifically, the revolutionary and evolutionary times we live in when it comes to analog gear for synthesizers. Now, that may seem a bit of a tangent coming from a mostly photography podcast. But I think it's a kind of interesting alternative, an interesting uh, what if, a kind of uh, a kind of scenario that begs the question: Is this ever possible when it comes to vintage cameras? And if it's not, it's still something really interesting to I think discover and talk about um, when it comes to where we are right now in 2020. Uh, as far as analog synthesizers go, the amazing choices that are out there right now. And I'd like to just go into a couple of things that are coming our way um, as far as these analog synths, these vintage analog synthesizers, and perhaps see if I can bring it all back to photography and uh, the analog gear that we are continuing to work with. So yeah, a lot of stuff to try to interweave here uh hopefully i'll (laughs) i'll bring it together or maybe i'll just miss who knows anyway i'll be right back my journey when it comes to vintage gear specifically when it comes to synthesizers really falls into two or three different eras there's the era of when i grew up when i grew up listening to this music when i was able to actually hear this stuff live Then fast forward a little bit to the desktop computer era, circa late 90s, early to mid 2000s. And then the era we're in right now. So, yeah, vintage synthesizers, analog synths. There's a couple of names that most people are familiar with. Um... You know, the one M-O-O-G, which most people pronounce Moog, um, which I pronounced Moog for decades, uh, only to find out it's actually pronounced Moog, (laughs) as in Robert Moog. Yeah, that's the name uh, of a synth that most people are familiar with, uh, whether it's the classic Moog Mini or perhaps the original uh, modular Moogs, those amazingly uh, constructed Things you would see on uh, taking up practically an entire wall, or or maybe on stage, like say with Keith Emerson, uh, a towering mass of interconnected cables and uh, modular units, all referring back to each other. 
Or perhaps if you grew up in the 70s loving uh, a lot of progressive rock or even classic rock, uh, I particularly was enamored with two musicians, uh, the keyboard player from Genesis, the keyboard player or players from Yes, uh, specifically, you know, Tony Banks, Rick Wakeman, all that good stuff. So, yeah, I was from a young age intrigued to say the least, by that sound. And when I got to hear a lot of those bands live, uh, it was mind-blowing. These were also instruments that just seemed impossible or, or way out of reach. Even if, you know, whether or not you played keyboards or not, uh, they seemed very much like a rarefied thing. You know, uh, expensive gear. As the internet, of course, came along, and as Wikipedia uh, began to... Uh, help one discover things that normally would have been researched in some obscure uh, keyboard magazine. Um, and of course, with the era of YouTube, uh, it's astonishing now what, what kind of back road trips you can go on uh, looking into the history of vintage synthesizers. Uh, Robert Moog was not the only one, uh, of course. Um, no, uh, you, you can go back to Mr. Perlman, uh, the inventor of the ARP synthesizers, uh, beginning with the classic ARP 2600. Also, um, prior to those guys, uh, there was a, a, a synthesizer that's called a Buchla, or I don't know how to pronounce it, B-U-C-H-L-E-R, um, uh, Don Buchla. Um, his uh, synths were uh, going back to uh, the San Francisco days, um, really original uh, synthesizers, um, who, uh, these were all just, just monumentally amazing um, works of art. Um, there's a recent story about how one of these synths was uh, uh, rediscovered, and a gentleman, um, this was literally a story from just a couple months ago, um, someone was cleaning out a bookla. Uh, classic book law, and somehow managed um, to get uh, dosed by LSD. <laughs> somehow the synthesizer had had uh, uh, possibly Owsley Stanley LSD uh, powder somewhere under the pots of the of the dials, and when he pulled it out to clean it up, uh, somehow got some uh, contact and took a little trip. Um, so yeah, these are just some amazing works of art, and it's an amazing period in time. Um, analog gear, uh, really, really pushing the boundaries of what could be done with synth synthesizers. You know, um, where that analogy begins to dovetail a little bit with modern photography is that at the end of the '70s um, and into the '80s. The the gear changed. Uh, people were still using amazing analog gear um, that could sequence and that could be used a little bit more adventurously for bass lines and things for uh, the house and industrial and uh, kind of that British post, uh, I don't know what you would call it, you know, the British post new wave perhaps. Um, Bands like New Order and Depeche Mode. Uh, so so they, they still held on. Um, but slowly and surely, uh, they 
started falling off in favor um, by the 90s, uh, with some exceptions, of course. Certain trance and certain uh, dance music uh, held on to those uh, analog devices. But, but by the late 90s, uh, everybody wanted a digital workstation of some sort, you know, a digital synthesizer, a digital station that could um, hold uh, and, uh, and deliver, um, you know, pe- uh, preset patches and could help you uh, not have to reinvent the wheel every time you wanted to get a different sound. You could just pull it up, you know, just, just go to your, your, your uh, digital bank of sounds. Likewise, around this time, you know, as we head into the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, analog cameras um, were having their last hurrah. You know, um, as ironic, I think, as it sounds, I think the peak of uh, analog camera sales, films, cameras, of course, is what I'm talking about, um, didn't just fall off uh, as soon as digital cameras came around. They, they actually sort of had one last hurrah uh, into the early 2000s. But, yeah, some, uh, some, some major, major players uh, would soon be on their way out. Um, Roloflex, for instance, would soon, by the end of the 2000s, uh, give it up. You know, no more um, contacts. Right now, uh, a lot of the podcasts keep talking about these amazingly built compact contacts G2 cameras. Small but, but brilliant, amazing lenses on them. Um, they would both be peaking and very quickly falling off that cliff. Um, and they would be discontinued as well. Uh, Leica, you know, the Leica uh, era uh, would soon be moving into their first uh, um, digital cameras and, uh, and, and they would be discontinuing any more uh, the analog stuff. Um, and I suppose even like, uh, I suppose Hasselblad, I haven't looked into when Hasselblad finally went completely digital. Um, another name, as well as um, Mamiya. You know, Mamiya, uh, I'm sure at some point discontinued the uh, the RZ2s and uh, their TLR lineup as well. So, so to, you know, going back roughly from like 95 to the late 2000s, it was both a peak and an end of analog cameras. Going back to the analog synthesizers, uh, going back to ARP, uh, they made a couple of bad miscalculations. Uh, they invested in one or two uh, synths that just didn't take off, and it essentially bankrupted bank, uh, the company. Uh, so they, too, uh, were out of the game. Uh, Roland, you know, who had been making these amazing um, synthesizers straight through from the 70s, early 80s, mid 80s, uh, and of course the classic uh, uh, drum machines, you know, the, the TR-808s uh, and the 809s, all that good stuff. Uh, they too kind of miscalculated where things were going and uh, quickly abandoned the analog gear for either uh, uh, financial reasons or just anticipating that no one would really want to come back to this stuff. You know, um, so ARP's out of the game. Moog, Moog as well. Uh, Moog's factory up in uh, Buffalo, New York, um, eventually shut down. You know, they discontinued their stuff. Uh, they didn't quite prepare for the digital age, and they uh, gave up the ghost as well. So here we are. You know, we're looking at these major uh, analog um, synthesizer uh, producers. You know, we're talking about ARP, Moog. We're talking um, about the Roland stuff as well. And, uh, and yeah, you know, um, this is now uh, a new era. The analog gear is no longer made. Um, the Internet is getting more and more um, 
kind of in these small corners, whether it's the user groups or the beginnings of YouTube, people were suddenly uh, paying attention to this uh, vintage stuff. Uh, and really, you could throw in the Mellotron thing as well in there, um, really like the first uh, keyboard sampler. Um, somewhere in the late 90s, you know, uh, a lot of indie people. Uh, I know um, John Bryan, the producer for Amy Mann, uh, he was obsessed with Mellotrons. Um, so there was sort of like a, a give and take. Some artists were definitely looking backward, uh, trying to bring out uh, these these vintage uh, machines. But the industry as a whole uh, was not looking back. They were uh, abandoning this stuff. So that's a little bit about the first two eras. My own personal experience growing up in the 70s, and you could say, I guess, listening to the music in the 80s as well, uh, being in love with uh, synthesizers, really, uh, it, was, it was a no, uh, no-brainer. Uh, I had always been a, a huge synthesizer fan. Uh, I am not really a musician. I just loved it for the pure gear factor, uh, for the sounds, for, for that kind of mad scientist sort of approach that anybody can create with these things and anybody could discover. Uh, and really go down a beautiful rabbit hole of, uh, of synthesizer stuff. Um, so yeah, let's fast forward again to um, reviewing that last part of the era, which which really would be um, the Macs and the PCs at the end of the uh, end of the nineties, uh, into the early to early to mid mid two thousands. Um, computer programs. Uh, started embracing these virtual instruments. You know, I think back then they were so-called VST plugins for your whatever, um, you know, uh, audio recorder you were using. Um, and you you could find a plugin that would imitate an old Mellotron. You could find a plugin that would try to emulate um, a modular Moog or emulate an ARP 2600 or an Odyssey. Uh, and uh, And they were very good. They were very good plugins. Um, they were very expensive. Also, around the time, I guess there were hacked versions. You could, if you went into LimeWire back then, um, you could possibly find versions that were uh, able to kind of work uh, uh, on your uh, early versions of uh, of Logic. Back then, it was eMagic, you know, eMagic Logic, or or perhaps a plugin for your uh, Pro Tools or what have you. What was popular back then. Um, but that involves a bit of work, you know. You, you were you were saddled to your desktop, or perhaps if you had a laptop back then that had the power, um, you could make the, your music going on uh, through that. Um, but uh, but yeah, you know, they were good for their time, but they were very limited in some ways um, by the headroom of the RAM on the computer, uh, by the chips back then. You know, the early two thousands, mid two thousands weren't the fastest machines. Um, Again, I'm not talking about studio stuff here. Back then, they would, uh, you know, I think back in the studios, they would not only just use a tower of some sort, but they would have like a sound card um, with a, an extra chip on it that would be helping you run these uh, plugins for both virtual instruments and plugins for emulations of, of classic uh, compressors and classic, you know, um, hardware stuff that you would have found in the studio. And let's just zig and then zag right back to the present, 2020. One of the reasons I went and found myself on this journey um, this weekend especially was because there has been a lot of news lately about two particular companies uh, reinvesting everything into rebuilding, not software, 
actual hardware versions of some of these classic, classic synthesizers. And who I'm referring to is a Korg as well as a Behringer. So Korg and Behringer. And, they, and they're, they're tackling an interestingly different um, approach. So Korg is going like just all freaking in. Korg's basically saying, we are going to rebuild, say, the Arp Odyssey. We're going to rebuild um, the, uh, what was the other one? Um, we're going to rebuild the, uh, the 2600 you know, the classic ARP 2600, and we're not going to cut corners, and we're going to try as best we can uh, to make these um, everything as good as the original and, and really in many, many ways even better than the original. Uh, and they're not, they're not worried about price. You know, they're typically pricing these devices uh, two or $3,000. Where Behringer's coming from is they're looking at it more like, well, we can... We can use the the current uh, state of the art chip manufacturers and 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 manufacturing folks in China. Uh, I don't know if they're specifically talking about Foxconn or not, but basically the the guys for the last ten years who have been, you know, making miracles happen when it comes to assembly and uh, and keeping the prices down in China with uh, all of the different smartphones, including of course uh, phones that we're all probably still using. Um, if they can um, put into production the amazing, you know, state-of-the-art technology when it comes to um, smartphones, why couldn't we use these same folks to help uh, reassemble and redesign but still match 100% or possibly 100% uh, the same sounds as these classic synths. So basically, Behringer's using um, the price point as their sort of starting uh, entry into it. So so basically, I, I, I didn't even know this, but a couple of years ago, uh, they had designed uh, something um, that would basically completely emulate the, uh, the Moog Mini. Um, I think theirs was... Uh, yeah, they've got so many, uh, so many different since they've been working on the last couple of years. Um, but yeah, the, the one that I call the Model D, I had no idea this thing even existed. It's actually been out for, I think, a year and a half. Uh, this is their emulation of the, the Moog Mini. Uh, it, you have to supply your own keyboard, so basically you find your own uh, you know, MIDI controller, uh, which can start as low as 60 bucks. Uh, and basically, as they describe it, this is an authentic, an authentic analog synth with three VCOs, ladder filter, LFO, and it's in a rack format. Um, and yeah, this guy is like, I think right now, you could get this, uh, the Behringer Model D, um, I think this is like under 300 right now. Uh, yeah, Sweetwater's carrying it for, okay, for 298 so it is $300. Um, and it's hardware. Is this is, this, is, this is no software emulation. This is hardware. This is a hardware analog synth that uh, there's been many reviews, and I'll keep coming back to this online, to one particular reviewer, AB'd every single part of making sounds on this guy uh, compared with uh, an, an actual uh, Moog Mini, you know? And uh, it's mind-blowing. Like, there were so few little differences uh, between these two. And so, so, like, what we're, you know, right off the bat, 
if you're not into software emulation, you could just head over to like a musician's friend, Guitar Center, the website for Sweetwater, and for 300 bucks, you can have a Moog Mini, which has been, you know, I think the only thing they had, I think some of the earlier models were having some tuning issues perhaps, um, but you can get uh, in the game with hardware for 300 What they're also coming out with is a more fully bodied version of the Moog Mini. Uh, this does not require a, uh, a USB keyboard. This one's going to have the whole thing built in. Uh, and this is uh, a, an emulation of one of Moog's, uh, before Moog stopped making them, um, one of Moog's last versions of the um, of the of the synth, and basically this guy's four voices. Supposedly this is polyphonic. Uh, it's built in 37 keys, um, and this one is still on the way. Like the, there's demos of this on YouTube everywhere, uh, and it just looks absolutely gorgeous. It looks it just looks amazing, um, and uh, yeah, this guy's I think going to be selling for just under seven hundred dollars, six ninety eight. Um, on the other hand, you know, at the same time, going back to the ARP stuff, uh, both Korg and Behringer um, have the 2600 in the works, uh, which I think people are craving even more, you know. Uh, part of the 2600, I think, was used for that Stranger Things soundtrack stuff. Or, um, so, yeah, so just to step back for just a second. In 2020, you have three options. If you'd like to play a vintage synthesizer, you could buy a brand new one from Korg uh, at a price similar, I guess, to when the originals cost anywhere from two to three thousand dollars. You could buy one that's a little bit, uh, perhaps not as perfect in reproduction, reproduction uh, for only three hundred dollars, or if you want this uh, newer one, seven hundred dollars. Or of course, you could still just download software. So all these reproductions are at your fingertips. And where it gets even more amazing with the software is you no longer need a computer. Uh, everything can be done on a tablet. Uh, obviously, uh, the iPad's a great version there. Um, so, you know, theoretically, you could get a discounted version of the last entry-level iPad, the sixth generation, or look for, you know, the seventh gen, just the, literally the entry-level iPad. Get yourself a $15 app uh, that's also made by Moog. Uh, that is their software reproduction of their mini called the Model D. Uh, and then, yeah, pick up a keyboard, USB keyboard, and you're making music on the fly. You don't have to be tied down to a laptop. You don't have to be tied down to a computer. Uh, and you're making sounds every bit as gorgeous as those originals. So if you're a th synthesizer enthusiast, or someone who just loves great vintage gear. This is an amazing time to be alive. <laughs> you know, I mean, I would never have predicted this. I mean, the, you know, the thing about software reproductions of these classic synthesizers. Yeah, this started in the late 90s. This got better and better as computers got better. Uh, and it's a no-brainer. You know, uh, anybody um, wondering, can computers help you emulate a full studio? Can you help you help you emulate a, a grand piano or an even rarer version of a grand piano, let alone all these amazing decades worth of synthesizer gear? Yeah, that's not so surprising because computers are so freaking powerful. And there's still that kind of niche audience who would love to be able to do this stuff uh, right on their laptop. But if you had told me 
five or ten years ago that you would be able to do all this stuff from your smartphone, let alone your tablet. Uh, that would have seemed absurd, but it's not. It's not. We're in an era now where the maestro of King Crimson himself, Mr. Robert Fripp, is touring not with a real Mellotron. He's touring with a Mellotron app on an iPad triggered by a USB keyboard. You know, um, a freaking entry-level <laughs> iPad can conjure sounds that, you know, a decade ago you would have had to invest in a sound card. You would have had to invest in all kinds of, back then, fairly expensive music software. All this stuff is a download away. You know, and you can assemble it uh, pretty well in some different apps. And, and not to give it, I mean, I don't want to get all biased, but there, there are many apps, including some uh, that, that I work with every day um, at work, um, that I'm getting more and more blown away by how they integrate with these other apps by, like, say, the Model T by uh, Moog. How does this relate back to photography? So if you do listen, uh, as I do, and I'm sure a lot of you guys out there, if you love photography podcasts, you know, if you listen to Sunny 16, if you listen to the Classic Lenses podcast, there's speculation all the time about, well, where where is photography going in a world where there are no new photography cameras of note, let alone new lenses, you know? Um, if... And especially the, you know, we people who love photography, we need film. <laughs> you know? So that's really where it begins. The part of the argument is how is Ilford doing? Is Fuji going to just keep discontinuing the last couple of uh, of uh, films? Um, how far into the game does Kodak want to go? Uh, and of course, there's a couple of other uh, very cool smaller manufacturers. Uh, a rebranded Roly makes film and there's a lot of Lomo photography uh, um, films out there. But yeah, so, so part of it is how long can film keep going? And likewise, well, what's going to keep supporting people buying analog cameras if we don't make any new analog cameras? And, and yeah, it's, it's a kind of apples and oranges argument, but, but there is, you know, when you look over your shoulder or, or watch the other huge analog, uh, interest out there and, and, and to some degree i think you know i th it's not surprising if you love analog gear it's not surprising you may be drawn to both analog cameras as well as analog musical equipment you know uh it's not surprising at all so so i'm sure there's tons of people out there who are shooting like four by five you know analog cameras and somewhere in their house they've got a Roland 808 <laughs> You know, or Juno, you know, um, there's a, there, it's a similar passion with one huge exception. You know, the guys on the sound side, the guys who do soundscapes, the guys who are musicians, um, this is a remarkable time for them because everything is on the table. You want to quickly uh, develop some great analog sounds on the go? You could do it from your smartphone. You could do it from your tablet. You want to get back home where you actually have a small studio set up? Cool. Which one would you like? Would you like the Behringer version uh, of the uh, Mini Moog or the ARP uh, Odyssey? Or would you like the Korg version? Actual analog hardware recreated with such love and attention um, to, you know... Uh, 
and it's brand new. The components aren't just going to die out. Uh, it, it's so remarkable. I mean, I'm, I'm trying, like imagine it's some alternate universe that Leica went out of business, you know, somehow Leica just didn't make it past the 90s. Uh, and then here we are in 2020, a company comes along and goes, hey, you know, we'd like to recreate the classic Nikka cameras. We're going to recreate the M6. We're going to recreate the M4. We're going to recreate all the original stuff, including the Barnax. And yeah, they're going to be expensive. They're going to be almost as expensive as the originals, but ours are going to be just as good. And actually it's going to, we're going to include a couple of features that were, that you probably wish were on the originals. Um, and at the same time, another company is going to come out and say, yeah, well, we're going to do the Leicas too. We're going to recreate all the classic Leicas, but ours are going to be made in China. And we're going to work, we're, we're going to focus more on the budget. And instead of costing $3,000, they're only going to cost 300 or they're only going to cost seven. <laughs> People will be freaking out. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so there's a degree of envy there. You know, I, I, I just, uh, and not envy, but, 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 and I'm also just, uh, you know, I, I never would have expected this, that 2020 would see the release of the most classic synthesizers, not as a plug-in, but the real deal. They're coming out with actual hardware, and it's not a joke, and these are machines that rival the originals in every way, and are in some cases better, <laughs> So yeah, it's a dream. It's a dream. You know, uh, it, it, I, I, you know, you'd think um, that we would be in a world where uh, either a that would be impossible because there was just some magic to the ingredients. Like, uh, and in some cases, you know, this 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 does ring true. Not to go off too far of a tangent, but this rings true in some cases for handmade instruments. Like, you know, as much as people would love to recreate the best Les Pauls and the, and the classic pre-CBS Fenders, uh, it's extremely hard, if not impossible these days, because the wood that they use on those devices, um, those handmade instruments, is not really available anymore, let alone the wiring that they use for the pickups is almost is extremely hard to replicate. But then to complete the whole thing, the vintage amplifiers use tubes, which are almost impossible for what I understand to truly replicate these days. So so there yeah, there are some niche areas where you could throw as much money as you want at them uh, and still not come back with something that rivals the original. Whereas that's the one thing that's beautiful about synthesizers is that they can. They can. They're not, you know, it's not limited by, um, they were not tube synthesizers, you know. Um, they can redo the circuits in a way that I guess still keeps the cost down, and yet they can, um, with the aid of, I guess, all this technology we have now, um, They can, and, and the miniaturization, too. That was another thing about, uh, that was mentioned on some of the YouTube videos, is that some of these devices are actually smaller um, and more, uh, more well-built uh, than the originals. So yeah, it's it's a kind of interesting apples and oranges, but but uh, but yeah, wouldn't it be ama amazing if in the in the film and video, I'm sorry, the film and photography world, uh, that that we could suddenly turn a corner, and, and there would be suddenly companies out there who could say, yeah, you want me to reproduce a classic Zeiss lens, a classic Zeiss rangefinder lens. You want me to reproduce a classic Leica lens? No problem. We got this covered, and we're going to come in uh, two or three thousand dollars less than the original. <laughs> oh uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know if that's going to happen. Anyhow, uh, yeah, so this is my journey into um, the land of analog, and hopefully, the uh, you know taking this little left turn and looking at synthesizers uh, wasn't too. Um, 
of a, too much of a stretch. Uh, but yeah, I, I personally have had an enjoyable weekend because uh, I did just finally upgrade um, my USB mini keyboard. I, I had one hanging out uh, literally for decades. I think I got it in 2000 or 2001. Um, and it wasn't compatible uh, in some ways. So I finally uh, found one made by iRig. Uh, very, very cheap. Uh, I think it was like $59. And it's it's longer. It's like three octaves, 37 keys. And I finally got to really appreciate the, uh, the Moog Model D app for 15 bucks. Um, so, so yeah, I'm really inspired. Uh, I think what truly drove this home for me was simply YouTube getting on YouTube and typing in Behringer synth or typing in, um, these guys who are making this AB comparison. And I'll, I'll put a link in the podcast for this one particular guy who's been doing an amazing job of comparing the Korgs versus the Behringers, comparing the software uh, versions of these apps to, uh, to the original ones. Uh, his name is Starsky Carr. And uh, the one particular one uh, I'll link first is his mini Moog uh, review versus the, uh, the Model D. Um, so that's literally comparing an app with the actual uh, hardware. Anyhow, I'll see you guys next week. Uh, if I'm lucky, uh, we might have a live chat. Uh, we, I did record what? did record a live chat, but uh, it's being, uh, I guess, uh, edited and, uh, and, and improved maybe uh, by the by the guys from No One You Know. Uh, so hopefully uh, we'll be coming back live with that one. Anyhow, have a great weekend and uh, hope, uh, hope you guys are still shooting.